Greetings, and welcome to Currents, a new podcast hosted through the Edmund W. Gordon Institute for Urban and Minority Education, more familiarly known as UMI. This podcast is a result of hours of thinking and discussion about how UMI would enter and contribute to this medium. The title Currents best captures the flow of ideas and the formation of knowledge, which often shifts and changes like currents in bodies of water. It also allows us to enter a discussion about current events, to have the benefit of scholarly knowledge and research without the lag time of publication. Finally, I would like Currents to connect scholars to their work and what inspires them. This podcast will provide a space where a network of scholars and stakeholders can share their views on current events, influences on their work, and the inspiration of their lives in the creation of knowledge. I'm Professor Callie Waite, an affiliate faculty member in UMI and a historian in the program in history and education here at Teachers College. I've described the work of historians as not only studying the past, but preserving the present for those who come behind us and hopefully shaping the future with our knowledge. With that in mind, historians are, quite simply, storytellers. I'm here to share the stories of our TC faculty beyond what their publications tell us. In this deeply fraught and complex time, where education and knowledge are critically important and often threatened, it is imperative that we hear how scholars are connected to their work and its relevance to our current challenges. Today, our guest is Dr. Amy Stewart-Wells, Professor of Sociology and Education and a longtime affiliate faculty of UMI. Welcome. Thank you. So Dr. Wells' full biography and selected list of publications is on our podcast webpage, accessible through the UMI website. To list her many accomplishments, including former president of the American Educational Research Association, would take up a significant part of this podcast. So first, thank you for taking this adventure with us in our first season. I'm really excited about this because while everyone knows of your scholarly presence, I feel like you and I take that for granted and are more often sharing a giggle or talking about everyday life in New York City. So I kind of take for granted, oh yeah, Amy's a superstar. So this is a great opportunity to bring both worlds together. So I wanted to start out by just giving people a sense of how you found your way to sociology um, and education, because I remember you as a journalist writing about education. So how did you make that transition? Thank you, Kelly. And and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. This is very exciting. And I I loved your explanation of currents and why, why you called it that. So I really appreciate it, and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this conversation. And thinking about sociology and education, one of the things that we all often talk to prospective students um, to our program about is whether they have a sociological imagination. So basically, um, what we think about is whether you see your individual story, your personal story, your experiences, your narrative, as, as connected to some macro structural issues that we need to think about that shape inequality, that shape access to resources, that shape things like racial segregation. So to the extent that you think about your own story within that larger context, you have a really powerful sociological imagination because you understand that your story is one of many stories and that the combined um, storytelling in the society often maps out in these inequalities and these patterns that we see. And that institutions and processes and policies are all a part of that. So I think somewhere early on, as I was a journalist um, in my early career and was writing about education, 
kept wanting to understand those macro structures a little bit more, kept wanting to think about, you know, journalists are good at telling stories, but they often stay with the micro experience of the individuals. Um, and sometimes they connect it to the structural issues, but not always. And that requires a little more in-depth exploration. It, it requires writing longer pieces, and it requires more systematic data collection. Um, and so something in me traveled up the one train from Times Square to Teachers College to find out more about what a doctoral program was and, and what this program in sociology and education at Teachers College was and how I could start to answer some of those questions I had between the links between these patterns and these stories on the ground and these bigger forms of inequality that we were all bumping up against. It's so interesting. I had forgotten that you were a TC alum. So there's a whole view for a different conversation of seeing TC as a student, seeing as a professor and seeing it change over the last few um, decades. So I love that whole notion of connecting an individual story to a collective story, because people often think of sociology as being these macro studies that are filled with statistics. And so I really appreciate your making it about individuals and the relationship between individuals and larger groups. It's almost like the individual in society finding some kind of link together. And so I think along those lines and the issues you mentioned, especially around issues of inequality and access to resources, I'm curious to know, um, what are you working on now? And how does it connect to our kind of current situation, which gives you a lot of space? It's a it's a huge question because in part, it's like, what do you think of our current educational system during this particular time period? And then what are you working on and, and how are they connected? So have at it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, we, what we're working on, I say we because I work with a research team of um, mostly doctoral students, but also master's students at TC. Um, and it's kind of the evolution of my work in terms of the development of the Reimagining Education Summer Institute that we do at Teachers College, which is about uh, teaching, learning, and leading for a racially just society. And if you had asked me like 20 years ago, Amy, are you going to do professional development as part of your work? Because I was a sociologist and um, I, I'm not in curriculum and teaching. I don't have a background in teacher education. I would have said, no, no, that wouldn't be me. Um, but what my research led me to was understanding um, that, that really we weren't getting at these deeper issues within schools as institutions around issues of race and inequality in particular and, and anti-Blackness and, and racism. And so we weren't focusing enough on curriculum and pedagogical strategies and sociocultural issues within schools. Um, the sociologists of education tended to focus on desegregation and sortings of students in one school versus another school and school choice processes, which are all very important to study and understand that kind of macro um, structural understanding. But it's also just how, how educators every day interact with and work with students in their classrooms and understanding how those macro structural forces enforce um, implicit biases against students of color in particular with a predominantly white teaching force um, how those macro structural issues, you know, shape the opportunities, but also recreate stratification within schools, right, through, through tracking and segregation. And so why does this processes of sorting and this racial hierarchy 
keep being reproduced within education, even as we have created a few policies that are supposed to, to address it. So I that, and then just being with an amazing, amazing group of colleagues here at Teachers College who have the expertise on the teaching and learning and leading part of anti-racist education. And together we really launched this, this project around reimagining education. So every summer we do this four day institute. We bring educators about 1200 from across the country some from across the world to learn about you know, why we need to reimagine the system, what is racial uh, literacy and how, in terms of how we interact with our students and our colleagues, um, how do we become more racially literate about our own implicit biases and behaviors, and then um, equity pedagogy, so some strategies for teaching and culturally responsive leadership. So we've done this now, this will be our seventh year to do it in the summer. And so out of that work has then grown a really rich area of research on researching resi. And really asking, you know, the critique of professional development in, in education is when you say teachers or principals come for a workshop and then they go home and they don't really use it and it's been a waste of time. So we were hoping that that's not what was happening with our summer institute, um, but we wanted to find out. So we wanted to know what happens when people go home. And we're learning, learning so much. So we have, um, we sent out a survey, we have about 150 survey responses back. And we have, we're doing, a, we've done about 70 interviews with educators across the country. Um, and what's coincided with that is this current backlash against criti critical race theory, so-called, in our public education system. So these are the educators kind of on the front line fighting that fight, right? So. They came to our summer institute because they wanted to learn how to be anti-racist, how to be culturally responsive. And then for some of them, not all of them, they go home and there's a big political backlash against that very work. So we're also learning a lot about what's happening politically in the country, what it looks like at the school level and the community level when this backlash is occurring, what kind of chilling effect it is having on educators. And at the same time, we're also learning about our own you know, for institute in terms of how to make it better and learning that when one educator comes from a school or a district and goes back with all this knowledge, it's hard to create any systemic change, right? So we're, we've also launched a project on Long Island to work with four, four school districts to concentrate the work there and really think about, can we make systemic change at a district level um, by having, you know, more concentrated work year round with these schools so that you don't have one educator comes to resi, it's great ideas of what to do, goes back and, and is not allowed to do any of it. And, and now in this current context, possibly even have their job jeopardized to do that in doing that work. So I've kind of fallen into an incredibly timely project um, in terms of what's happening in the nation. Um, but I also see it as a project where we are leveraging the knowledge and the expertise of Teachers College out into the world. Um, and it's, it's our faculty, but it's also a lot of our doctoral and master's students working on this and, you know, providing workshops. And so we're actually learning how does that best translate into changes in practice and policy in the field. So I think it's a really timely project. And I'm very grateful to be able to do this work right now and hopefully provide some guidance to the field. So it's been really interesting to hear you say that it's been seven years because I remember when this was a meeting uh, in the library with a bunch of people trying to figure out what direction it would go and what its purpose is. And so 
what I want to ask you about, I think you're absolutely correct. And I'm going to, in a minute, ask a little bit more about our current issue with critical race theory. But I think one of the things that's also really important for people to know is how much work it took to do these four days, right? Um, Because while it runs seamlessly and smoothly, can you talk a little bit about funding it? Mm. (laughs) I mean, or not. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, You don't have to mention funders' names, but there is this whole notion of you can have, sort of getting at this idea of the having of wonderful ideas, but bringing those wonderful ideas to fruition, which is like a second job. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That that much I would really agree. But it's been, um, so working with the Continuing Professional Studies Department here at TC that does a lot of the PD professional development work, um, that I should say organizes it, markets it, supports the registration of it, um, has been really, really wonderful because I feel like you know, that's a, an arm of the college that um, is so important, really, to, for us to engage more with practitioners and, and to support practitioners in the work. And so um, we've worked with them to create registration that generates revenue to support the work. And then we also do some fundraising with um, private foundations. So, for instance, we're one model that we have is that a foundation will support educators to come to Resi from a particular geographic area. So a uh, a foundation in New England will support New England educators to come to Resi. Another one on Long Island will support Long Island educators. Um, and so, and then we're working with another foundation that has partners with six districts across the country and they're supporting them to come. So, uh, and then we just have gotten some general gifts for programming that have been really helpful as well. But, um, and you know, that this kind of thing, it takes a while to figure out what's the right pricing and, you know, what are all the expenses? And then there's like economies of scale. So as we get bigger, it gives us a little more wiggle room, but um, it's been a lot of trial and error. And thank God for the CPS staff has been so helpful and supportive in this work. And, um, and they're, you know, and this is what I think the college should be doing really, right? We should really have that whole arm of, of, of the college to, to bring practitioners in to engage with us in why does the research matter and how can we translate it and support you? And I think that's the key issue is thinking about why the research matters. So in some ways asking, how does this relate to our current time? You're like, well, it's always current because we're always dealing with teachers and what they're, uh, and what they're going through or other education professionals. And I'm wondering, um, you know, it's grown tremendously. I don't remember how many people there were the first year. So it's grown. There's this arm of funding. There's there's the content piece. But I'm wondering, have you had time to reflect on how this program has changed from its first two summers until now? And taking into account what it was like last year, I'm sure there was a different set of issues. One, it operated remotely but it was a different set of issues that probably took um, precedence in what educators came here for. So if you could say a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, that's a great question. So the first year, I'll just say we had 130 educators, limited marketing and outreach. um, And then last year we had about 1200. So, and we've been virtual the last two years. So that's allowed us to grow, but, um, and we hope to be hybrid moving forward. So 
So that's a great question because I feel like the politics and the context kind of has been like a roller coaster, right? In 2020, we had the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others and the Black, Life, Black Lives Matter movement um, was so emboldened and so empowered. And so that brought a lot of people to the Institute and, and a lot of promises made on the part of school districts, right? That they were gonna do something and start DEI committees and. Um, and then the roller coaster dipped quickly because there was a backlash to that um, with the right wing, I will just say it, people on the right side of the political spectrum um, to, to stifle that very work um, that was just starting to really take off in some places, some districts that hadn't embraced it before. And so that made last year really challenging and will make this year challenging too because there are educators out there who are afraid they're going to get fired if they show up at a place like Reimagining Education. Um, so we try to kind of pivot and maneuver. And you know, one thing that we're seeing in our research, this is why the research is also iterative and generative of the, of the work, is that um, this political backlash, similar to that research at the University of Chicago on the, on the insurrection in January 6th, right, showed that most of those um, folks who came to DC to storm the Capitol were from parts of the country where the demographics are changing, mostly white people in um, contexts where the demographics were becoming less white um, in terms of less white population. And so um, I think where we're seeing this backlash in terms of CRT in schools, I mean, there's obviously a relationship between these two groups um, is more in suburban places that are changing demographics. So becoming, having more students of color move in, more families of color. Um, so that leads us, the, the urban spaces have not been as affected um, by this backlash, right? In terms of local political, um, you know, efforts to, to stop teachers from teaching about Toni Morrison. So, um, so what we're doing now is pivoting to make sure that we're marketing to those places where teachers will feel safe to be able to come. Um, and then hope, hoping that we can be helpful to teachers in those other contexts that um, you know, really need our support. I mean, one of the things that we've learned in our research is that people who come to Reimagining Ed really value it because it's a community of people trying to do this work, right? And they may all be in different places on this journey, but they feel support, they feel solidarity to be with others trying to do this work. And the fact that Teachers College does it matters a lot because Teachers College matters in our field, um, our reputation, our history. And so the fact that we're standing tall to do this work and supporting them matters a great deal. So while we are pivoting a little bit to try to avoid places where um, there's a huge backlash, um, at the same time, I, I still wanna support educators in those spaces who are able to, to come. So we're trying to maneuver um, we wouldn't want anyone to lose their job by coming to reimagining right. it, but um, but it, it's it's been tricky. I'm going to be honest; it's been tricky. The politics are tricky, and um, maybe the the people who need this work the most are those who are now more sealed off from it. So, yeah, I think you've happened well. One, it's another delicate dance. In addition to funding, advertising marketing, bringing people in, finding places for them to be designing the, the curriculum for those four days is now, how do we reach people um, and not put them in jeopardy? And I want to go back to um, 
something that you said, which I think is really important, and that's the idea of people being sealed off, that doing this work, um, where you're doing it, whether people are virtual or whether they're coming, ends their sense of isolation. Because in certain communities, it may feel like, am I crazy? I'm the only one who's teaching these things. And so a lot can be said for ending isolation. Interestingly enough, um, Kate Rimnier's book, City Teachers, written about teachers in the 1920s, identifies these four things that teachers suffer from, and one of them is isolation. And, you know, if you were to do that same survey now, and I can't remember off of the top of my head what the other three were, it was, it was like one was a lack of autonomy, one was a lack of community and isolation, um, the other is no career ladder, and I forget what the fourth one was. And this is for 1920. And whenever I teach that book, people are like, but these things are exactly the same. So I think that idea of ending the isolation or letting people know that others are out there um, is really important. And then you wanted to say, um, well, I'm just going to say it plain, the right wing agenda. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that, because when we look at what happened in Virginia, of all of the issues that are happening, Young can won on the notion that we're no longer going to teach critical race theory. And I think this is a really great opportunity to kind of break this down a little bit and have people understand what we're talking about. As you know, and I'm not going to lecture, critical race theory was something that, I mean, it's a theoretical construct that was introduced at a law school. People have now taken critical race theory to mean anytime you talk about people of color, if you teach United States history as fully as it has been exposed, then suddenly you're practicing critical race theory. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about how people are interpreting because you're talking to so many different teachers and school districts, how are people interpreting critical race theory versus what the actual piece, what the actual work of critical race theory is, which is often a high level graduate school course that requires all of these other disciplinary um, knowledges to be able to understand. So could you say a little bit about that too? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, it's tricky because it's the Christopher Rufo is the way I, I, I understand it. He's like a, a right wing person who, who, uh, who thought of this idea of using that terminology. Um, and he did it intentionally, right? So that it could be this big umbrella that would then morph to cover everything. Um, and also knowing that most people don't know what you mean when you say critical race theory, right? Including a lot of K-12 educators if they haven't been to law school or, or other forms of critical graduate school. So, so it becomes confusing and disorienting and it sounds scary, right? And then, you, and then you add this baggage of it's making poor white students feel bad about who they are, right? And it starts to galvanize this movement. And meanwhile, the educators we're talking to know that they're not teaching legal studies, right? They're not teaching um, a deconstruction of our laws and our policies, as you would as a critical race theorist in a, in a law school or a graduate program. They know that they are doing what, what Gloria Ladson Billings would tell us is good teaching, right? They know that, and, and this is part of my mission too, um, as a researcher, is that the knowledge of our field tells us that culturally responsive education is just good education, right? Gloria tells us that, the research on, on our brain science and development tells us that, 
Um, psychology tells us that, right? And, and people who understand teaching and learning tell us that, right? So we're just, we as educators, we're trying to, those of us who come to Resi and engage in the work, we're trying to do what's, what is good teaching, right? And, um, and being culturally responsive to students is gonna look different now than it did a hundred years ago in this country, right? So, you know, the fact that Rufo created this broad umbrella that now seems to encompass everyone and everything who's trying to address issues of race and education was by design. And the question is, you know, the educators are asking us and we're working on through our research is what is the response, right? Is the response simply saying that's not what we're doing? I feel like people have tried that, but I don't think that's the response. I think based on my research um, that the response is exactly that. We're doing good teaching and, um, and to actually broaden our base by so showing many, many parents out there that you want a student-centered education for your child. You want a culturally responsive education for your child. And research tells us they're gonna learn better if they have that. Um, you don't wanna just be testing them with standardized tests all the time. You want them to have relationships with their teachers, right? You want them to feel trusted and to feel um, empowered to you know, convey their talents and their gifts that are multiple and, and, and multi-dimensional and multimodal. So that's what we're doing at Teachers College with reimagining education. So we are using the knowledge of our field and the expertise of our field to implement good teaching and good learning. And it's really what most parents, if they think about their child and their child's development would want for their children. So, um, so it, it's kind of, I think this way of turning the narrative and, and turning it back to say, you know, rather than constantly saying that's not what we're doing, what they do in the law school, which it's not, but, but also to just show that we have the research, we have the evidence, we have the knowledge, we have parents' intuition to show us that this is the way we should be doing teaching and learning in the 21st century in a very multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural society. So just get out of our way. Like just <laughs> take yeah. your CRT BS and put it somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. That's what we need, a communications campaign around that. I think that's so powerful what you just said, because it is about reclaiming um, that space, right? Instead of letting, instead of being on the defensive of, no, that's not what we're doing, to not even address, no, that's not what we're doing, but to say, this is what we are doing. And if in, and if within that you are threatened, then that's a whole other issue. So I think that's a really important message and one that that people haven't thought much about. It's always about denying and saying it's not these things and it's not these things, but what is it actually? And I'm struck by when you talk about these communities and, and the backlash to um, all of the events of, of 2020, um, all of the issues around racial, racial justice, I'm leaving out the pandemics, 2020 was a hell of a year. <laughs> to say the least. But I'm thinking about, and you probably know this better than I do, there was a particular year that the first grade class of the United States taken collectively was more, was more minority than majority. And it was then for me that I began to see like people really ramp up what it meant to have this multicultural 
or multimodal or, you know, very broad education, what you're calling good teaching. And so I'm wondering if there is any connection between that, if people really feeling threatened as the world changes in some ways. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it explains our our whole racial politics right now, right? Um, And the storming of the Capitol on January 6th in 2021. Um, Yes, it it absolutely, absolutely relates to the changing demographics um, and how that became code for, you know, really white supremacy to rise up again and, and take back the country or whatever the framing of that is. And so that's why I think it's so important um, to really frame this as, as the right thing to do um, as a society in terms of just thinking about education and teaching and learning. But it, it's also a, a broader effort to reclaim our field from a lot of education reform, a lot of political rhetoric around accountability and assessment that that so contradicts what we know about child development and child learning. And this is another piece of that, that I feel like over the last 30 years, an important piece, a central piece, we have lost our voice as a field, as a profession in these political policy spaces. And so the fact that I am a sociologist and I do policy work and I'm in this space of professional development, learning more about how children learn and, and what we know about it. I feel like that's like, I'm kind of into the fate part, you know, <laughs> like I feel like I am trying to leverage that knowledge into spaces where it's been pushed aside for so long. And I feel like that's the only way for us to move forward. You know, I like to quote my former student and colleague, Janelle Scott, who likes to quote John Dewey's famous phrase about um, democracy needs to be recreated anew every generation and public education is the midwife, right? And so if we believe that, then education has a huge role to play right now, right? In, in saving our democracy and saving our society and to, and to show that we can create an intercultural, multicultural dynamic society where we're learning from each other and working together um, through, through education and through these ways of teaching and learning that we're talking about every summer at Teachers College. And we're backed by research. So even the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine have said that culture is central to how children learn. That's what we're doing. As we pull the lens back and we look at what your career is like in your relationship to the work, one of the things that's super exciting that I hope people will take away from this is how we as individuals transition and continue to learn. So I think it was so great when you were saying, well, I started with this, you know, as a journalist and I thought in this way and I worked in this way. And then I wanted to expand that. So I became a sociologist of education. And then I was looking at these particular pieces of of policy or practice. But now I find myself learning more both in um, cognitive knowledge about how people learn, but also this notion of professional development. I think that's the part that's really exciting is this idea that while we may pick one path that we go down, it has so many branches to it that we just continue to add to our knowledge that we don't stay just in one path. Like it wouldn't be enough if you were just like, well, I'm only going to address policy issues, right? It's not enough because then you're saying, well, these teachers, and then it gets to this real core um, that's sort of the, in the introduction is sort of the importance of 
education. It is a cornerstone of and has been since the 1830s. Um, it is a cornerstone of American society. And when we forget that part and we forget that relationship and we think it only operates just for us as individuals, then we run into this larger problem, which brings us full circle to your whole notion of a sociological imagination, right? That I'm thinking about more than just my story, um, but the larger story. So Amy, thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation and has sparked so much thinking. Um, and I really appreciate your um, taking the time to talk with us. And clearly, um, we'll have to have you back next season because now we have a whole new set of questions um, to talk about. So thank you so much for spending thank time with us. Thank you so much. I love the questions and I love that full circle. That was beautiful. <laughs> thank Here you. This go. was a lot of fun. I'm so glad. So again, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the podcast. It has truly been a pleasure to have this time with you. And also remind us of the important work that you're doing, but that all of us could be doing. Thanks to those of you who are listening. Please visit the UMI webpage and subscribe. Our web address is tc.edu forward slash IUME. There you can find a full bio of Dr. Wells and a list of her selected publications. On our webpage, you can also find more information about each of our episodes. You will see that our guests come from a wide range of fields. We are interested in knowledge across and through the disciplines, so I hope you'll join us. Once again, this is Professor Callie Waite wishing you the best. <laughs>